Welcome back to another episode of Catfish Corner, the USA Today Tennessean Predators podcast. Uh, today we have a special guest. We're not only going to talk hockey and predators, we're going to talk all kinds of things with uh, a voice you're probably familiar with, a voice that uh, doesn't really need a lot of introduction, but we'll introduce him anyway. He's a friend to everybody, uh, everybody at least I've ever seen uh, him around. This is Doc Emmerich, who's uh, NBC uh, national hockey announcer, and uh, for the NHL he's done He's won all kinds of Emmys, all kinds of awards, um, but uh, and he's been a friend of mine for five or six years. Um, and Doc, welcome to the show. Thanks for joining us. Thank you. And we are actually sitting here talking about this the day before the playoffs were supposed to begin. I know. We'd, I think we'd rather hear your voice on the TV instead of on this podcast. Yeah. But we're glad to have you. Uh, what, what, uh, Doc? What have you been doing? You know, it's 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 hard to you know, project if and when things might come back. But what have, I know you've been uh, doing some play-by-play. It's some good when you're getting your windshield wipers changed and stuff like that. What else have you been up to? <laughs> yeah, another one was a 10-meter sprint with our dogs uh, because they all paw up at the gate and then you open the gate. It's like a horse race. Uh, those have been fun to do. But um, unlike yourself, I'm not an experienced writer, but I've been hooked up with somebody who was, Kevin Allen, who has done, I think, 16 or 17 books now. And uh, so he and I started about a year and a half ago on a book project um, on a sort of autobiographical for me, but also uh, incorporating hockey and a little football and a little uh, baseball and a little basketball from my past, but mostly hockey and, and uh, also my life. And um, March 31st was to be the deadline. But you, unlike myself, know how these things work. Uh, we heard from the publisher just yesterday, which was, I guess, the 6th of April, that uh, we have to do a revision on the first chapter. So I guess you're never really done with it when you think you are. But it will be out in the fall, and hopefully people will find that it's a lot of fun. Uh, it's not a moneymaker by any means. As a matter of fact, uh, anything that comes to me will go directly to the hands-on care of animals. But Hopefully there'll be a lot of funny stories in there, as well as uh, uh, some insight into some of the places that I've had a had the privilege of going over the last uh, half century. I'm looking forward to checking that out. Kevin's a, a former co-worker of, our, of mine, and um, you know I've long read his work, and uh, it's, you know it looks like you hooked up with a good writer. I've never written a book. I've been approached several times, and I. I don't know if I have it in me. I know it's it's the dream of every writer to write a book. I just and I've seen what it can do to people uh, when they're trying to do their regular jobs. And uh, you know, maybe one day um, I'll do that. It's a funny story, Doc. I had a I used to live in Miami Beach, and a, a friend of my my grandmother's uh, was a, a world renowned psychic. Who she was the first one to ever approach me about doing a book. Um, but I haven't haven't done that yet. I, maybe you'll find the time in the future to to do that. But I'm really looking forward to, to reading this. And speaking of places you've been, I want to. Well, now wait a minute. <laughs> wait a minute here. So now she's a, a psychic. Yeah, and she approached you about doing a book. Yeah, this was many years ago when I was. I want to hear about this. Well, so how did how did she go about this? Well, she it, it, it's strange because I was never a big you know I I don't believe or disbelieve in these things, but. Um, you know, she was, uh, her name is Mickey Dane. She's a, a friend of, she was a friend of my grandmother's. They lived in the same, uh, condo complex down in, in Miami beach. And, um, the first time I ever met Mickey, she, the first thing she said to me was, you're going to write my book one day. And I already have the title. 
It's called a, a nut on Walnut Street. And Mickey's father was, uh, I think, if I remember correctly, was the head of MGM Studios. She was she worked for you know, the, the FBI. Used her a lot. The police used her a lot. Um, believe it or not, the National Enquirer, you, whatever credibility that has, used her a lot. But she she made a living off of this, and I got to know her a little bit when I lived down there. And she was a very uh, very interesting person, you know, a very tortured soul, uh, you know, and she predicted a lot of things that, that, that happened, and she had a, you know, her, her resume kind of spoke for itself, but yeah, that was one of the first things she said to me, and she, you know, she knew I, I was dabbling in or wanting to get into writing at the time, this was probably more than 20 years ago, um, and, you know, I hadn't yet barely gotten my feet what, what yet as a writer, but she said, one day you're going you're gonna to write my book, and, How about that? and that, that was a quite an introduction. What's, yeah, she's still yeah, she's still living. She's down. I think she's still down in Florida. I haven't talked to her in some years, but um, you know, I, you never know. Uh, yeah, no, no, that's right. And you, you just need to be lucky enough to hook up with somebody like yourself. And oddly enough, it was during the Predators series with the Pittsburgh Penguins that I happened to run into Kevin after one of the morning press conferences during the final, and I said. I have I have struggled for eight years trying to pull organization together to do a book. Are you busy right now? <laughs> well, of course it was during the <laughs> final, right? And and he said, well, I've, I've done several before. Let's talk about it some more. And out of that came that. Well, hopefully uh, one of these times it might work out for you. But it, it is a challenge. But it hasn't been as much for me because I haven't had the heavy lifting to do. But in the case, um, I have a feeling in the case of doing one like that, you would have the heavy lifting to do. So you're probably advised to uh, to walk carefully because it winds up being a heavy project. Yeah, and I, and I know you and I both know Mark Lazarus, who covers the Blackhawks for The Athletic. He, he's, he did a book during the season, which I thought, you know, he's insane enough as it is to try to pull that to pull that off, you know, and having children at home and a family, is uh, it's, uh, that's something else. And I, you know, it's a time commitment that I'm just not, ready to commit myself to yet but i you know i'm not saying i would never do it um but you know also the subject of the book you know kevin's lucky to have a subject like you and um you know with all the different stories that we had pete weber on a couple weeks ago and i i just like to sit and listen to you guys um the the stories that you can tell you're 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 the kind of guys who like if i ever saw you sitting at a bar having a pop i'd want to just sit next to you and shut up well you would you'll be able to do that too all you need is to get uh to lose some more hair and get gray around the temples and you'll be able to do the same thing <laughs> it it just happens from being immersed in it uh for uh for a greater number of years that's one of the advantages you have of youth you'll be able to accumulate a whole bunch of stories as time passes and many of those will be about the preds then you'll have a natural book to write about the predators pete has been a number of places but he has been ensconced there in Nashville ever since the beginning. I've always said about Pete, he's such the per, uh, a perfect fit anywhere that he's been because he's such a good guy. But uh, he would be the perfect next-door neighbor, which makes him fit so well in Nashville because not only would he bring the tools back if he borrowed them, but he'd clean them up for you, too. That's uh, the, the perfect. That's the perfect analogy of Pete, and he's. Uh, I kind of call him the R-rated version of you. Uh, he's uh, he's got some good, some some jokes. They're a little off color, but you guys, you know, the, the stories and the places you guys have been, and the things you guys have seen, um, and the experiences that you've had. You know, not just in hockey, but you know, in, in all kinds of sports. And and I wanted to you know talk with you about some. Of, I know you're a big you're a big Pittsburgh Pirates fan, 
Um, how, you, but you grew up in LaFontaine, Indiana, um, which is not a very big place. I think the population 10 years ago was about 875 people. Um, what, could you just tell me a little bit about your, tell us a little bit about your, your childhood and, and kind of how you got, I know the stories, Doc, but I, w- I want to share them with, with some of the people um, of how you kind of got into what, what you're doing today. Well, it was an idyllic time to be growing up, uh, and, and many of your listeners won't be able to appreciate that because they weren't alive at that time. This was the 1950s. Um, World War II had passed. The Korean War had passed. It was, um, television was brand new. And you wound up in a small rural town surrounded by cornfields. And the best way to imagine it would be if any of you have ever seen the movie Hoosiers, that would give you not only a panorama of the flatland of the prairie of Indiana, but also the importance to a small town of basketball. We had in the population in the 1950s, and it was, it was printed on the village limits stick on Route 15, population 627. And of the 627, there were 13 celebrities in town, the coach and the 12 members of the varsity. <laughs> not the junior varsity, not the freshman team. The varsity players and the coach were the celebrities in town. And our growing up years were of uh, riding our bicycles around town at all hours of the day and night. It was a safe time, it was a safe town, and it was a wonderful place to grow up. And uh, becoming a Pittsburgh Pirate fan, living in a town like that that was so far away from Pittsburgh, only occurred because of radio. There were 50,000-watt radio stations that at that time, unlike now, carried Major League Baseball. And at night, it was just wonderful to go up and down the dial and and hear the St. Louis Cardinals and hear the Chicago White Sox and the Pittsburgh Pirates and the Philadelphia Phillies on these radio stations that only came in at night. And I landed on KDK in Pittsburgh at a time in the late 50s when the Pirates were no longer cellar dwellers, but were, were becoming good. So I was, um, I was a bandwagon guy. I jumped on the Pirates bandwagon in the late 50s when they were becoming better. And my parents took me to see them about, oh, five hours away from where we lived at Wrigley Field in Chicago. And I got to see Clemente play right field and my hero, Bill Mazeroski, play second base. And uh, I was hooked. And it's a lot, I think, like your religion when you decide that you will have something like that. Sometimes it, it is early in your life that you do that. And um, that was the case with that. And even though the teams that Pittsburgh has put on the field in the last 30 years have been largely awful, um, you don't change. And I find that the, the, the rolling schedule of baseball, even though your team may not be very good, it does get you through an off season wonderfully. And I think that's, that's the thing that I miss a lot this year because they were supposed to open the season last Thursday. And they, were, they, they, they might have lost. Likely they would have, <laughs> but it was the fact that it's opening day and it's optimistic and all of those kinds of things that uh, make springtime so wonderful. So we miss that, but maybe down the road we'll see it again. You, um, <clears throat> when you were growing up, you you uh, began kind of. It's an interesting story, kind of how you're, you you began with the broadcasting. You would sit in a corner and, and at Fort Wayne Fort Wayne Comets games um, and kind of record yourself into a little 
you know, a little recorder that you had and, and um, humble beginnings, I guess, right? I mean, you, 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 something that you love, but you maybe didn't know it can turn into what it's turned into at the time. But I mean, those, those Fort Wayne days I know are special to you. Um, could you just t- talk to us a little bit just about the beginnings of, of you know, the, the early beginnings of Doc Emmerich? Yeah, they are special times because they're, they're so vivid in your memory. And it's oftentimes I'll ask a player, um, especially one who is near 30 or in their 30s, and we do scratch hard to find guys that are that old anymore, don't we? Yeah. Uh, I'll ask them what the best Christmas or birthday gift was they ever got. And if they can think of one, it's amazing how their face lights up as they retell the story, because there is a time in your life when everything, unless you've had some tragic thing happen in the early years of your life, there's a time in your life that is just magical. And those years you referred to of me being in La Fountain, Indiana, are are just magical. And that part of my life, when I was just getting to be inside a hockey arena, sitting by myself in a corner of a Wednesday night game in Fort Wayne, because... Saturdays it was full, 8,032 seats, all of them full on Saturday. But on Wednesday, you could have a section in the corner to yourself where you wouldn't bother anybody. And you could call the game, and uh, my dad had a music store, and uh, so he had all kinds of recording equipment that he would sell. But there was one battery-powered reel-to-reel tape recorder that, uh, that I basically took I borrowed it to, to try it out, and then I just never gave it back because he saw it was important for me to have. And I would take that and load it up with, um, with uh, D-cell batteries and record it, record the game to myself, and then play it back in the car on the way back home. And uh, that was how I learned the hard way with an audience of one, what, how, you know, the mistakes that I would make and how I might do better the next time, et cetera, et cetera. So those days are kind of magical to me because they were they were the fun times of learning on the fly on how to do this and having the ambition of hoping to do that for a living someday. And I still encourage other young people to do just that. Uh, I listen to their work sometimes, and I always encourage them to save the very first one because it won't be very good compared to what the 10th one will be like or the 40th one will be like. But save the first one. And in particular, when you wind up getting a job in hockey someday, you'll, you'll still have it, and you'll be able to listen to it and laugh at it. Uh, I still have um, John Walton's CD from the Hershey Bears. Uh, he would send it to me, but he sent it to a lot of places. But uh, I have treasured it because... He went with his dream to the NHL, and he's done some work for NBC, too. And there are some other guys that are in professional hockey today that years ago uh, sent me a cassette or uh, sent me a, a DVD of their, of their work, and they realized their ambition. They've gotten somewhere. I didn't have a whole lot to do with it. I offered them one person's opinion of what their work was and a lot of encouragement, but by and large, if they had the talent to do it, they're doing it to this day. Well, you know your opinion carries some weight. I know most people know you as the hockey announcer. I mean, you're the you know you're the voice of the NHL now and the national broadcasts and the Stanley Cup final and and a lot of playoff games. 
But interestingly, you, you, uh, you've done some other sports and done some other things in your time. You called Brett Favre's first game with the Packers, um, which I never would have guessed. Um, I did a little bit of homework on you. I don't, I, uh, but, you know, you've done some football. You, you've done some other sports. You've done some Olympics. Um, you know, do, do you have – you speak of those first memories. Do you, do you have – what are some fond memories of, of – other than hockey, and we'll get to the hockey, but – you know, has there been sports? I know that, you know, calling a Major League Baseball game for a long time had been a dream of yours. And um, what what kind of is on your special shelf in terms of experiences that you've been able to have maybe outside of hockey? Well, doing that one baseball game in Pittsburgh when the Pirates beat the Cubs with Bob Costas was special. I, I got to do what the World Lose Championships from Calgary. Uh, once I wound up doing a track and field series from Europe. Uh, for CBS, a, a guy named Rick Gentile, who later moved on to be in charge of, the, of broadcasting for the Big East, um, the Big East um, Conference, uh, was at CBS, and he gave me the chance to do a lot of things uh, while I was still working for the Philadelphia Flyers, uh, one of which was an NCAA regional basketball championship. I worked with George Raveling on that, but I got to do a preliminary game with the great Bill Raftery, which was quite an experience, uh, a wonderful guy that introduced me to everybody in basketball. We had a Syracuse-Providence game, and we had dinner, our crew did, and, and Bill, of course, made sure that I was very much at home, introduced me and sat me right across uh, from Jim Beheim at dinner. And so I got to hear a lot of great stories. Um, and Rick enabled me to do seven NFL games. Uh, there was uh, a new guy that was just coming aboard with CBS. Uh, his name was Matt Millen. He had just finished his NFL career. He had three Super Bowls with three different teams, and he just retired. But he had been such a good interview with uh, when he was playing that CBS thought he would be a wonderful announcer, and so they brought him on. And the first two weeks of the season, his normal partner, Tim Ryan, was assigned to uh, the tennis tournament uh, in New York. And so they needed somebody to work with Matt, and the Flyers' season hadn't begun yet, so I was the guy. And because he was new, and I, and I was certainly new, I hadn't done a game since 25 years before in college, they assigned us to small market teams. First week it was Green Bay and Minnesota, and the second week was going to be Green Bay and Tampa Bay down in Tampa. Mike Holmgren was the coach of the Packers. It was his first game. Dennis Green was coach of the Vikings. It was his first game, and Matt and I were wet behind the ears as well. So we were all rookies together. And uh, we, with a thing like that, you go to the home team's practice on Friday, the visitors on Saturday, and then you do the game on Sunday. And when we met with Mike Holmgren, for whom uh, Matt had played in San Francisco when he was an assistant coach, he had familiarity with him. We were about to leave our meeting with Mike, and he said, I know you talked to some players. Did you talk to our quarterback? And Matt said, yeah, we were just with uh, Don Mikowski downstairs. And he said, no, no, the other guy. And Matt said, no, Mikowski's starting, isn't he? And Mike said, yeah, but I, I want to tell you about the other guy. This guy comes from a little town in Mississippi, and so he filled us in on Brett Favre. Well, he wasn't starting, so we just kind of put this information in the back of our heads. So anyhow, long story longer, it seems, um, 
Uh, Fouad Rivez kicks a field goal in overtime, and Minnesota wins, uh, and Favre doesn't play. So the next week, down in Tampa, uh, things don't go too well for the Packers, and so in comes Favre. Now, he's thrown four passes as an Atlanta Falcon, no completions. And so here he comes in, and uh, the first play, he's, he's a passer, right? So he drops back to throw the pass on the first play. And it ricochets off one of the on-charging linemen for the uh, Buccaneers and right back into Favre's arms for a completion, <laughs> and he's tackled for a loss. So I did get to call Brett Favre's first pass to himself. Uh, and one of his many completions, even though it was to himself. We, I want to switch gears a little bit here. Um, you know, we, I had done a story with you a few years ago uh, in 2015 during the Stanley Cup run, final that year, and um, I learned that you uh, started a little bit before that time, or maybe 2014, you started to write letters and mail them to people who made an impact in your life. And you, you, where did you get this idea um, and what what kind of prompted you to want to do that? It was from my brother, Paul. Um, at a time when both my parents were teachers, and they were teachers near this small town in Indiana, so everyone knew them. But they had been retired for a number of years, and they were coming up on milestone birthdays. And my mom hit the milestone of 81st and was in failing health. Um, and so my brother put an ad in the newspaper, uh, and, and she was not getting the newspaper every day, but he put an ad in the newspaper encouraging former students to send her cards. Um, and at that time, email wasn't so popular. It was the 1990s. Sending her snail mail cards in the mail, wishing her a happy 80th birthday. And um, it was remarkable the number of cards, even in a small community that she received, it was, it was around 100, which considering the population was, consider, was, was impressive. Anyway, he hung all of these cards in, uh, in her uh, and dad's apartment, and then we had a surprise birthday party for her. And, um, and, and then we took turns reading the cards to her, and many of those had recollections from her many students. And that's uh, and she just shook her head, saying, "I had no idea that anything that I did registered with those kids." And it made me think, especially when he had done it for my father a year later as well. I wonder if any of these people that have made a difference in my professional life are even aware of what they have done. So I sought about. With your help, I might add, in getting some snail mail addresses, um, in reaching out to these people and just letting them know how important that they had been in my life and how much I appreciated it. And oftentimes people don't get any first-class mail anymore that's personal. It's either bills, uh, once in a while a check, or the rest is all third-class or solicitations. So... The actual mail that comes is very rarely a personal note. So I think that, plus the fact that it's written in cursive rather than typed out, uh, you can dwell over your words a little more because it takes longer to write. 
and you can choose your words a little better. But uh, So that was what I started back then, and I still come up with some new addresses every once in a while. The hardest thing to get, as you can appreciate, because I asked you to help me and you did so well, the hardest thing to get these days are snail mail addresses, not only because people move about a lot, uh, but because email addresses seem to be very easy to get, but snail mails are hard. Right. No, that's and and if 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 you ever need any more help, I'm glad to help. Um, okay. Thank you. I remember at one time when you were with the Tribune, I thought, how did he get some of these long buried addresses? And then I decided I'm never going to make an enemy of the Tribune. <laughs> It's a secret. Um, Doc, you've never played hockey. Uh, you, you don't know how to skate, although there was a former roughhouse defenseman with the Flyers who tried to teach you one time during a Christmas party a long time ago. Uh, but what, what I wanted to, I wanted to kind of, and I don't want to put you on the spot too much, but and, and there's, there's a big inventory to choose from, but have you had favorite, I won't say pick a favorite player or a favorite team or a favorite this or a favorite that, but are there guys who have stood out to you over the years um, who, you know, you, you, you kind of developed relationships with organically that, uh, you, you know, were special to you? I mean, and you've been doing this so long. It doesn't have to be hockey, but, I mean, are there people, I'm sure there are a lot of them, but there are, can you name several examples of just people you've come across who, who've just kind of, you know, stuck with you through the years? Well, I think, uh, yeah, it, it, as soon as you mention one, then you leave uh, about a 450 out. I always said that in terms of good guys in hockey, there's probably over my years a 500-way tie for first. Um, and, and as soon as you mention one, you immediately think of 10 others. Uh, I, always, um, I always thought Gordie Howe was wonderful, not only as a player, but, also, but even more so as a, as a, uh, as a personality. Um, I thought we, we have had so many ambassadors that there's almost a handoff through the years, isn't there? Uh, we had Howe, and then we had Orr, and then we had uh, Wayne Gretzky, and then, uh, you know, Sid does an awful lot of that, too. And to, and to be that, you have to have a lot of things going on. First of all, you have to be an extremely talented player, the best of your time, probably. Uh, you have to have a working knowledge of English that's really good, uh, because... Um, only two of our franchises are bilingual uh, in Ottawa and Montreal. You have to have a willingness to do it every day and to do it tirelessly. And that does separate a lot of people from that category of being great ambassadors. I, I enjoyed Nick Lidstrom a lot because of his humility and because of his incredible skill. I'll tell you one story that is, is unusual in that because we live around Detroit, we, uh, we were able to get season tickets to Red Wings games. We didn't use them, but people around here love the team, and so we would, we would uh, distribute it to them so that they could go down and see the team play. We're about an hour away from Detroit. So an event like that once a year was a big deal. Well, anyway, so Nick retires, and my wife and I are out for a walk one day, and we come back, and... The answering machine, as often as the case, is flashing. And there, uh, so we play it back, and it's Nick. And it is a recorded message from Nick that was simultaneously sent to all the phone numbers on the season ticket list. And it is, hi, this is Nicholas Lidstrom, and for my wife mentioned her name, all the kids' names. 
We want to thank you for your support of us during all the years that we were with Detroit. We will miss it, but I have retired now, but I will never lose the soft spot I have for the Red Wings and for everyone in the family of supporters like you. Now, who does that? You know, I guess Nick. Yeah, and, and you know, that so- sounds like something, you know, down here in Nashville, I, you know, I've been in different, not a lot of different markets, but, you know, I've been in Chicago, which is a much different market than here, and, um, you know, a lot of the, the, the way the Predators are run um, from top to bottom are, you know, it sounds like something that, that, that they would do, you know, it sounds like something their 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 players would do, or, uh, you know, and, and it's, like I've said long since I've been here, I've only been here about a year and a half, but this market here is different, it's, 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 um, I don't know. It's it's kind of corny in some ways, in in good ways, um, in ways that you know maybe um, aren't well received in other markets or understood in other markets. But they you know they really sell hockey down here, Doc, um, and and the Predators have done a good job of that. Um, you know that Cup run in '17 certainly helped uh, prop that up. But you know the <clears throat> the fan base down here is loyal and and loud, and you know Bridgestone is one of the better places to watch a game in the NHL. I, I know you've been to all the different places, and, uh, you know, I, it's hard to argue that this is, you know, at least not in the top three or four uh, in, in the NHL in terms of fan experience and, and fan interaction. But, you know, it, it's, uh, what, what was your, you know, what were your impressions of the, that, that 17 Predators team? You got to learn a lot about them, you know, kind of snuck up on everybody at, at the end of the season there. And, um, you know, one of the great things about hockey is, you know, getting in the playoffs, and it's you know who knows what'll happen after that, and that was a perfect example. Or you know the Predators knocked off the, the the mighty Blackhawks, and and from there it was all the way to the to the Stanley Cup final. Um, you know what what your time that you spent here and the times that you've been here. What what have you appreciated and learned about the franchise in the city? Yeah, well, I've known David Poyle for a long, long time, even back to Washington days, and I, I'm so glad for him that even though his career hasn't been awarded with the ultimate victory, that there is no other general manager that's won more regular season and playoff games together than he has. And he turned the Washington franchise around from one that was that was sad into one that's been a perennial winner ever since. Um, you know, he handed the reins off a long time ago there. But uh, I'm, I'm happy for him for that. But, you know, even going into that sixth game, uh, and I'm sure that Predators fans have looked back at that one controversial call where the whistle was blown but the puck was in the net and, and have thought, gee, if that becomes the only goal, and you could argue that would have been the only goal in that game um, you know, before, uh, before the, the late one and then the empty netter by Pittsburgh, We'd have gone back to uh, to Pittsburgh for a seventh game, and then who knows? In a seventh game, it's almost 50-50 that the home team does not win. It's it's all of those ifs. But what a marvelous team that was, and what an exciting place it was to be at that time. And the fiddle music out in the streets, and what what great celebration there was of hockey then, and it will continue on. And uh, being cyclical as it is. Uh, I was figuring up the other day while we were stopped. It's funny what you have time to do. Uh, everybody had played 68 games when we were on pause. They played more than that in some cases, but everybody had gotten in at least 68. So I rolled back 
uh, all of the numbers to try to figure out if we took everybody at 68, how it would all shake down. And uh, Nashville would have had the first wild card. But it would have taken, by and, and this is unofficial because I'm the one that was doing the figuring and I don't do my own taxes. Nashville would have had the first wild card and Vancouver would have had the second one, but it would have taken the third tiebreaker to sort it out. <laughs> well, anyway, it, it's fun to think about, isn't it? Um, but no, that, that uh, it, it was an exciting run and, and to have uh, Rene doing what he was and to have and to have all of that going on and the challenge of the previous year's champion and going as far as six games and to having it be such a nail-biter in the sixth game it was um, it was wonderful doc do you do you have any i mean i know you you know you're like the rest of us i mean i i just have the feeling that pro sports are i, I just I'm, I'm, every day that goes by it seems less and less likely that that we're going to get them back this season and you know, given all that's going on, it's understandable. But is there, you know, I think the Olympics, uh, p- p- the postponement of the Olympics, could do well for the NHL should things progress in a you know in a good way with the, with COVID nineteen. Um, you know, in terms of you know TV uh, availability for the, for the NHL and for the playoffs. Um, what is there a scenario in your head? I mean, do you see this? actually happening or I mean do you have any thoughts on what how it could work or, or you just kind of waiting around like the rest of us or what kind of what are your what are your interpretations of everything that's gone on well we're sitting here on Tuesday the 7th of April and I haven't heard any numbers today but in some of the cities that have been besieged uh, there are some of the some of the awful numbers that are still not zero but they are less and, of course, the, the mayors and the governors are saying, let's not get careless here. It is a nice trend, but it is only a day or two's trend. And we are gradually working our way to where that curve that has been talked about for the last 10 days in some states may be turned. All of this is hedging our bets. And some of it is hoping beyond hope that in the future that this may happen and that we may, with all of the research that's going on, find something positive to hang on to for the future. The commissioner has asked teams to protect July and August in their buildings as best they can in the hopes that maybe there will be games that could be scheduled in the playoffs later in the summer. Those are all things that we can hope for there is no reality in any of this yet but those are things to hope for until such day as we learn that they can be substantial or they are further postponements we just don't know but there were projections that were made a week ago that these would be dark days especially here in the middle of april they have in fact been but we also find that even the newscasts which uh, can leave us to feel downcast even the newscasts are finding some glimmers of hope in their projections ahead and so we will take whatever glimmers of hope we get and be happy for those if we continue those of us who are sequestered if we continue to do what we do 
we will do our part and we will help further this cause along. But we've got to continue to do what we do. You're absolutely right. I mean, it's, you know, it seems, it all seems so secondary now. It's, you know, just, you know, the perspective has obviously changed for a lot of people. And, and, um, you know, now we're watching old reruns of old games and watching weird series on Netflix and <laughs> and doing play-by-play of our windshield wipers being changed. <laughs> <laughs> yeah, there was some of that. I, I've seen Charlie Sheen strike out Pete Bukovic three times in the last week on Major League, and you, you, you just wish the film would change and maybe plonk him and then the benches would empty, but I guess that's just my hockey background. I can't, yeah, no, I can't believe that nobody's, you know, nobody's updated that, that, that movie yet. It's a, you know, obviously a classic. You don't want to mess with a classic, but you're right. It should, we, we should have alternate endings for that. That might be, you know, if, if we have enough time, somebody with some, enough time and uh, talent could probably make that happen. I wanted to ask you, um, you know, the, the windshield, I'm teasing about the windshield wiper thing, and, and it was it was funny, and, you know, it's a it's a great relief you know a moment of of laughter in in a time that can be dark but um could you what are some of the i'm sure you've got have gotten requests in the past to like you know sing happy birthday or or call a little league wiffle ball game or is there any strange requests you can remember in the past Um, that you've got williams uh at nbc news was doing a friday night show and it was during our last lockout uh, he rightly thought that I was probably driving my wife crazy, and he said, how about we send him out to, uh, to call a kid's game? And then his, his daughter, who later appeared on an HBO series, his daughter was a hockey player, and so he further thought it should be a girl's game. And so we found uh, an under-12 game in Troy, Michigan, and oddly enough, Doug Brown, who was a Stanley Cup champion uh, in the NHL, was coaching one of the teams. And his daughter was playing right wing. Uh, it was the Troy Sting against the St. Clair Shores Saints. It was one of the best nights I ever spent in the rink. It was <laughs> hockey at its purest. I was allowed to go into both uh, rooms and talk to the players right before face-off, before they came out. There was no warm-up. They just came out, skated around, and played. (laughs) And one was a concert violinist. Another wanted to be a veterinarian. These are kids that are 9, 10, and 11 years old. And uh, I asked her what what, uh, pets she had. She had a dog, two cats, and hermit crabs. I said, what do hermit crabs eat? She said, little rolled-up bits of lettuce. Well, it was kind of my show for Brian, so I made sure that I that I got in that anecdote. I mean, if anybody out there has hermit crabs, they know, but most people don't know what hermit crabs eat. So this was going to be one of the educational sidebars of the show. Anyway, he made it into about a ten-minute piece. Brian did, and that was that was one of the great times that I remember having. Um, was inside a rink during uh, during the course of a lockout. I guess there's some comparables in that we've we've learned to sit. You and I have during these long stretches, but in the past it's been reasonable men with law degrees on either side of a table, and this time we don't have that. Right? There's yeah. There's there are no choices. You know, Pete, Pete said a couple of weeks ago. You know, it's you know then you could have you know you could have solved it and something could have been done, but it wasn't. And now it's just you know now there's no choice. Now there's you know there's no other option but to to sit and wait, and that can be. You know, that can be taxing on a lot of people. There's a lot of you know a lot of things going on with with jobs and people worried about the economy and and, and all that that goes with it. But 
you know, I, I do appreciate you taking the last 45 minutes or so to hopefully, uh, you know, give people something else to think about because, you know, I think that's important during times like this where, you know, we're not able to, you know, I'm not a big talker on the phone. I've been, I've been on the phone with some, with some old friends I haven't talked to in a while, you know, just to see how they're doing and catch up and, and things that, you know, maybe we should be doing that, you know, we gets lost when we're, when we're so busy. Um, and that's kind of why I brought up, you know, you writing the letters. I have a, a, a person who is a superior of mine who does that. And I've gotten a couple of, you know, a couple of handwritten cards. Um, and it's something different about that. There's, you know, there's something different about opening that envelope and seeing the handwriting and, and, you know, the time that somebody took to, to just, even if it's a couple sentences, you know, a couple words that, you know, it mean it seems to mean a lot more than just shooting an email or shooting a text or, you know, or whatever. But, um, you know, it's, 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 t- it's tough times now for everybody. And, and, you know, sports are so secondary to everything. Um, you know, even for those of us who that's how we make our living. And, and I've, I've been keeping busy, you know, trying to do some, some news stories and stories that actually matter and, and trying to work on some projects and reflect on things. And, and, um, you know, it's been trying to make the best of it. Um, but, you know, again, I do appreciate you sharing your time with us and, um, yeah, well, if, if you can, it, it's great of you to ask. And if you're able to, to find some good stories to share with people, because the, you know, the, the top of the news always has to be informative and the information this, in this stretch of time is uh, often discouraging. But uh, there are stories all around, and you know about them in your community and all across the country. And here's just one quick one. There was a man who had here in the Detroit area had a gas station across the street from one of the hospitals that was totally besieged, as the Detroit hospitals have been. And he felt that, you know, it's $1.59 a gallon up here right now, and he felt that he could probably... Um, give $700 worth of gas. So the owner of the station went out and stood outside with a sign that said, free gas for nurses. And so on their way to work that morning, the nurses stopped off and they all filled up their gas tanks for nothing. And then when he had given out the $700 worth, he flipped the sign over and remained out in the cold weather with a sign that uh, the other side of the sign said, thank you so much for what you do. Well, one of the nurses got to the hospital and called uh, one of her relatives and said, you wouldn't believe what this guy did today. So the relative lived in the suburbs, drove into the station, and they showed on television here the video of her on the other side of the plexiglass shoving some money under the plexiglass to the owner of the station saying, Here's $200. This is for the nurses. So the guy goes back out in front with the sign and, sa- and that says free gas for nurses and gave out another $200 worth of free gas for the nurses at the hospital. And those are that, that's one story out of thousands that are going on now because people are, uh, you, you may not hear them all because there's only so much room on the newscast and in the newspapers for them. But these are a part of the good things that are going on in the country right now. And they are the things to be emphasized, too. And that's a perfect way to end this show on a, on a good note like that. And I know, I, like I said, you know, we had the tornadoes that hit here a little over a month ago. Um, 
And then right on the heels of that was was this pandemic. And it's been a rough time for you know people everywhere. Uh, they kind of we were kind of hit with a double whammy here. A lot of people were, and you know the, the kindness that you see and the cohesion that you see uh, during these times is something that you wish you could see all the time. And, and you know I do again, Doc. Thank you for thank you for coming on, and that'll do it for another episode of Catfish Corner. We hope you'll subscribe to this podcast on iTunes, Google Play, or wherever you get your podcasts. Drop us a review or rating while you're at it. I'm Paul Scarvina for. Mike Doc Emmerich, and we'll be back again, I'm not sure when, maybe next week. Thanks for listening. Mm-hmm.